The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Romans 3, 9 through 26. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written... None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness as the present time, at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the reading of God's word. Greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to give the worship team a hand praise. It is, they did a great job uh, in leading us in worship this morning and under the circumstances. And it is always good to hear a little crooning. So Brother Cedric, I think he did a little bit of that for us uh, throughout the worship service. Uh, and, and, that was, and that was good. Let me say... Uh, uh, let me say that I am thrilled, my family is thrilled, uh, to be here and be a part of this body. Uh, it is not because of my intellectual ability, my nobility, uh, my achievements, accolades, anything that I stand before you. It is only by the grace of God that I am able to expound on God's word by the power of his spirit. And I'm privileged. I'm not only privileged to preach his word, but I'm privileged to be one of your pastors. I am grateful for Richard and Terrence who have served and many of the staff members that have labored here at Downtown Church. And many of you may not know, but my name is Michael Davis, and this is my first time standing before you preaching as your your pastor of this church. And so, thank you. I just want to apologize in advance. The Davis family is messy. My son is probably terrorizing the nursery, and he will rip and run all over this place. I will be a mess at times, 
And all I'm asking is, is that you look to my wife for all of the grace and perfection. All right. I also want to acknowledge what Aaron has already acknowledged, the rich history and legacy. We stand here on the, soldier, on the shoulders of a cloud of witnesses who have sacrificed themselves, men and women, for the fact in which we can all sit in this place, uh, no matter the race, creed, uh, no matter the social economic class, no matter the distinctions, we can all be here because of what brothers and sisters have done and sacrificed our lives not for a political movement, but because that's what the gospel calls us to do. And so I'm very thankful because we can sit here and we can pursue justice and equality uh, through redemption. And most of all, I am thrilled and glad to be in God's house. Because I want my life, like many others, to give glory to God. And so that's what I am very much appreciative of, that God's glory is on high and we've sang it this morning and drawing attention to it. So brothers and sisters, I just wanted to open up saying that. But many of you know that we have been going through a bring the church bring church back series. I was talking to Richard and I said, you know what, one of the funny things is that yes, we're bringing church back to the attention of culture. Because church has never gone anywhere. In fact, we stand in the building right here who has been who's been here for centuries, for a, over a century. And so when you think about it, the reality is this building has been here, but where have we been? And so as we bring church back, we have to think about the fact that maybe some of us have left the church. We've been here physically, but we're not here spiritually. We're not here with our whole mind and our whole heart. In fact, we've been hurt by church. There is much church hurt through dysfunctional family, which is kind of the topic for what we will talk about today. We've been hurt because pastors have hurt us. We've been hurt because someone has backbited against us. We've been hurt because someone has treated our children, our family members wrong. We see also, I mean, I live in Binghampton. I see a, 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 a rejection against the church because of certain ideologies. I was just talking to a sister who knows about many of black Hebrew Israelites and Pan-Africanism and many of other things in terms of Egyptology, there are various different concepts in which the church has been attacked or people have, have left the church because the church has attacked them. And so as we think about where we are this morning, we have to consider the fact that the church is pretty dysfunctional. When we understand that the church is pretty much imperfect, we come to the realization that we don't bring any perfection to the church, but we come to a broken body knowing that we bring our brokenness together to stand before a holy God. And so my admission this morning to you is not only is the church dysfunctional, but I came to this realization that my family is dysfunctional. I, I think oftentimes as I sit and observe my family, I look it through the grid and say, listen, all of them, they don't have it together, but, but, but I have it together. What am I really saying? If I look at my, my nieces and my nephews, if I look at my uncles, if I look at my cousins, my, I look at my aunts and I look at everyone around me and I, I only project upon them that the reality is y'all got something wrong with y'all, not me. What am I doing? 
how am I viewing myself? I don't see myself being a contributor to the dysfunctionality of my family. This is the reality of Romans 3. Because what it says to us, and when it talks particularly in the context of the Jews who have been high moralistic individuals, and then he's also talking to those that are Gentiles and who are completely wicked. You think about what he is saying to them. He said, there's, nothing, there's no one. The, the repetition is intentional. And the reason that I love, I, I, I love this in terms of what it talks about to as a dysfunctional family, it, it reiterates the fact that no one understands, no one seeks God, no one is righteous. All have fallen short of the glory of God. But here it is, we, we struggle with it because some of us will say, how can we suffer from what Adam and Eve did? Some of us cannot rectify that because we say we haven't even had a chance to prove ourselves. We have not had a chance to prove ourselves. And so we struggle with the fact that how can I contribute to the sin of humanity if I've only been born into this? I'm not the culprit. This is not my fault. Right? But even as the family of God, we have to admit that we're contributors to the dysfunctionality. We have to admit that we're contributors to the dysfunctionality. Because here's the liberty. Once we acknowledge our brokenness, we can then see the beauty of church. We can see the beauty of what it means to have a life together for eternity. Because you know what? As sinful, depraved individuals, what we have to realize is we don't desire to be together. We don't wake up in the morning longing to come and sit amongst one another. I got to take a brief moment. Last week, Bishop Reeves preached and he had 50 million amens. I, I, I need just three or four. It was like somebody was right behind me and just slapping them with amens. In order to encourage a brother this morning, I just need three or four amens. That's it. That's it. That's it. Amen, somebody. Amen. Is God good? Amen. Okay, come on. Talk to me, church. Talk to me, church. The reality is we don't desire to be in relationship with one another. That's, that, that is just the reality because of our own brokenness. And when we see that and when we come to grips with that, we say it is by the power of the cross that man can be brother. It is by the power of our Redeemer that we can desire to come together and we can look past our distinctions and look into what God has unified us by. That's what we talked about last week. That's the power of the gospel. And so what's significant about this passage this morning, church, it talks to us and shows that we are a picture of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have to admit that we are dysfunctional. We have to admit that we are part of the problem. But it does not negate the fact of what God is doing in the midst of his body. The power that God is doing in the midst of his body is a mystery to us all. And so what we have to admit, first of all, is that first, we're radically corrupt. But we also have to admit that we are radically redeemed. That we are all radically corrupt and we are all radically redeemed. Before we dive into God's word, please pray with me. Father, you said in your word, if your people humble themselves 
who have called, who've been called by, the, by, the, by your name, humble themselves and pray and seek your face. You will then, Lord, heal their land. If they turn from their wickedness, you will be their God. Help us, Lord Jesus, to see how you can heal our church, how you can heal our land, our city, our nation. How you can be with us in these dark hours at times. How you can be with us when there's joy as well. Help us, Jesus, to see what your word says to us and how it is relevant for us today. I pray, God, that you use me to speak to your people. Allow me to hide beneath your cross. Use my words. Think with my mind. For it is in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. All God's people said. Amen. Amen. First of all, we all have to admit that we are radically corrupt. That's the first point. Radically corrupt. What R.C. Sproul says, and the reason I use radically corrupt as opposed to total depravity, is the fact that radical at its core in the Latin means root and core. And what it's saying is, at the core of humanity, we are corrupt. There is no goodness in us. We are fallen human beings. We are totally depraved. And so what he is saying to us that sin actually pervades the way we think. It pervades our heart. It perverts our minds. It causes us to look down upon the body of Christ. It causes us to look down upon the church. We can highlight all of the dysfunctionalities and not see what God is actually doing. You can sit in a worship service and point out everything we're doing wrong and not even recognize what God is doing in the midst. Do you see the power? You can think about what transition may be going on in the worship service and forget the reality that singing with your brother or sister, sharing in the joy and the suffering with one another on the day to day when we come together, there's everything in society trying to divide us, even internally. That we miss the power of what God is doing in his body. And Mike, what are you saying? Why are you emphasizing this? This is what Paul gets to when he puts together this string of Old Testament passages, which is a rabbinical technique that he uses in verses 11 through 18. And as he emphasizes that human unrighteousness corrupts not only the body. I like this picture because it shows this progression from the, from the throat to the, uh, to the, to the mouth, to the lips. And when you see the progression even down to the feet, to the eye, up into the eyes of the body, what are we? The body of Christ. The devil can try to use anything, our mouths, our lips, our eyes, our feet, our, the entire body to try to divide us. Paul gives us this picture because he's talking to the Jews and the, he's talking to the Jews in particular because who did they think they were? They thought that because God chose them, they were God's chosen people, his beloved people, and though that they were, that they had higher stakes and that they were beyond, there were distinctions. They were beyond other Gentiles and everyone else around them. And what does he say? When you look at verse 11, he says, no one understands. Oh, just start at verse uh, 10b. 
None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. All have sinned, ladies and gentlemen. That's nothing new. All have sinned, ladies and gentlemen. That's nothing new. But what we understand that sin has no particular person that it discriminates against. You realize that? Sin doesn't care if you're black. Sin doesn't care if you're white. Sin doesn't care if you're rich. And sin doesn't care if you're poor. Sin doesn't care about your heritage. Sin doesn't care about where you come from. Sin doesn't care where you're going. It wants to kill you. If it can kill one of us, it can kill all of us. But here is what Paul is trying to tell these people that it is not their conformity to the law that is the most paramount part that they can earn righteousness or conformity to what Jesus has done into their life. What how he's united them through his death is the most powerful part. Listen to what John Stott says. He says this, that sin is a revolt of the self uh, against God. The dethronement of God with the view to enthronement of oneself. Ultimately, sin is self-deification. The reckless determination to occupy the throne which belong to God alone. Think for a moment. How much... We enjoy sin. Think about how we enjoy and give our attention to what we delight in that's pleasurable. More so than God's glory. More so than God's joy. More so than God's presence. More so than sitting right here in God's house. When we recognize that we always on the inside have a Messiah complex that simply wants to dethrone God and we want to sit on that throne, we then admit that we're radically corrupt. We admit that we're the problem. We admit that we're contributors. And so what we want to demonstrate then is a humility. Because here it is, brothers and sisters, corporate worship is paramount. What you do on a daily basis, your personal devotion to God, does not supersede corporate worship. It does not supersede coming together as the body of Christ, worshiping, lifting up holy hands. Because we always talk about a picture in heaven. I know we all have our personal prayer closets. We have our own devotional time. We enjoy the quiet time. But what we are trying to emphasize throughout this series is that the collective body emphasizes what God wants to do in uniting our hearts together. That when we prepare our hearts to come together throughout the week, it is a clear indication that God throughout the week is not allowing you to be distracted and crowding out everything else you want to worship, but to be together with your family. To be together with your family. Amen. Because here it is, we have a meism theology. That our worship every day is about me instead of the interdependent reality in which we can rely on one another. Poor people can learn from rich people, but rich, rich people can learn from poor people. Black people can learn from Asian people, but Asian people can learn from black people. White people can learn from Hispanic people, but Hispanic people can learn from white people. You, you, you see what I'm saying? If I only rely on learning from 
black people, my people, that would be the most comfortable reality for me. That was, that's where I would desire to be. But if I look to learn from my Asian American brothers and sisters or just a different culture, what happens is I learn to depend on the fullness of what God is doing in his body and not only making a distinction for one emphasis in his body. Am I making sense this morning? See, the worship in the meism theology is all about how can I accomplish what's best for me. But when you, rea- when, you re- when you realize that we are all created to worship, so throughout the day-to-day we are worshiping something, we are worshiping someone, we are worshiping things, we begin to grab our minds together because yesterday was another sanctuary time. Everybody went to a game or everybody sat in front of the tube and they worshiped their team. Everybody may have been at a concert and they worship the person that they enjoy. You realize that these are collective gatherings. These are congregational meetings. We may have gone to the store, to the mall, and we worshiped with the people around us by shopping. You don't realize it, but there is a liturgical way in which you form your life each and every day that you're worshiping. Absolutely. As soon as you pick something off the shelf, whether it's that $175 pair of Jordans or whether it's one of those red bottoms that somebody's buying, I don't know what it is. But you're looking at it and there is a someone's engaging you. Someone's actually leading you in worship. The salesman. You see that? He or she is asking, what do you like? He or she is leading you to purchase something in particular. When you go to a particular game, it's the people that are on the football field that are, that are leading your hearts or on the basketball court or that are leading you through the worship. When you're listening to the commentators, you're not paying attention to it, but they're guiding you because of how they emphasize particular words, the excitement about it. It's worshipful. But what's the most important part of worship? Is God. And so if our hearts, when we sung this morning, I know many of us may have been talking, but when you listen to Come Thy Fountain, when it says our hearts are prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. To leave the God I love. That is sin. To leave the body of Christ. To make distinctions within this body. To think that I seek God myself. To think that I can, prov- I can prove myself. You see what Paul is trying to emphasize? That all sin, all people are sinful. But not only all people are sinful, we have to reorient our hearts to realize that we, sin is pervasive. Sin is pervasive. Look at verses 13 through 17 where he says, Their throat is an open grave. They use the tongues, their tongues to deceive. The venom of acid is... Uh, under under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. And the and the way to peace they have not they have not known. They don't know at all. They don't know peace at all. What? Why is Paul being so intentional in demonstrating this disease that defiles our 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 body progressively? What he wants to highlight is this simple truth is that our mouths can either tell truth and life or it can reek of death and lies. 
Remember when James emphasizes in chapter 3, 8, when he says about taming the tongue, but no human being can tame the tongue? It is a reckless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in his likeness. Sin is deceptive. Because the reality is, God created us to be in his image and likeness. Not only does sin pervert our minds in in image management to look in the mirror and not appreciate who we are. To possibly want to be someone else or be something else. But the reality is sin also allows us or entices us to speak ill of one another. Think about it. Think about how we use our words. Do they tear down or do they build up? Or these words that are clear clear distinctions that we love one another. Do we come into these walls? Do we come into these doors trying to encourage, seeking out someone to tell them how they are a blessing or to, to remind them of something that they've done to bless you? Do you look to be a blessing to someone else? This is what the body, this is a clear indication that we are the body of Christ. Because remember in John 13, 34 through 35, he says that if you love one another, you then will show that you're my disciples. A visible proclamation of the gospel. A clear indication that we are of the body of Christ. But our passage shows us that there is a tremendous amount of corruption, malice, violence, dissension. That causes intentional rebellion against God and his church. Think about it. We're being lulled to sleep about the issues of the confederacy today. Our own Bishop Richard Reeves was amongst brothers and sisters in Athens, Tennessee this past week on Friday. I called Richard Bishop at times. I don't know if y'all caught caught that. It's It's just a joke. Okay, Uh, I'll go into that another time in the ecclesiastical aspect, but it's a joke. As they, I watched a little bit of it live. And to see that today, the division and strife in our nation is at an all-time high dealing with issues of race, social class, distinctions, right? So... When you look at this issue of confederacy, where monuments are to be considered removed from a particular area, you may be in this building and land on different spectrums. Some may want the confederate uh, 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 monuments removed to their respective places. Other people may want them to stay there and they should not be defamed by their removal. And others want uh, nothing to to do at all with them and they should be completely erased from our history. We, we land on various different spectrums, probably in this particular room. We know for sure within all of Christendom. But here's the reality. Do we allow these distinctions to divide us? Though that we may be on different continuums, do we allow them to say, I don't want to be a part of this body anymore because of brother or sister so-and-so is for or against the Confederate monuments? Why? Why would we, I, 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 would, I would want us to answer the question of why would we leave our family to do that? The reason I'm intentional with saying family is because when you think at the, the origin, if my son were to say to me, Daddy, I'm leaving, 
Because I don't have my Cheerios. <laughs> I can't believe y'all don't have my toys ready. I'm going down the street to another family who's going to give me my Cheerios and have my PJ Masks toys. And he just walks out the door. See, the reality is that sounds far-fetched. If I were to leave, and we know people who have actually left their families, husbands and wives who have removed themselves completely, and we, we know how that's torn the household and it's divided. We all come from broken, many of us come from broken homes. I know that I do as well. And so not to have a father at home at a certain age and to have a stepfather, that becomes a reality in some people. And it's just like, oh, that's just, that's what it is. But not to know your biological father or your biological mother. Many of us are adopted. And so we don't even know our biological parents at all. It, it, it shows that if we were to get in these families and there was a bit of mess in them, how can we leave? Am I making sense this morning? Church, if we don't seek face-to-face interactions to benefit each other for the benefit of the gospel and the advancement of the kingdom, all we think about is the meism in our theology. Because then we say, can culture actually fit my gospel? No, that's not how it works. So when we think about this, brothers and sisters, we can't leave one another. We have to stay here. We have to remain here. We have to seek restoration, reconciliation with one another right here in the body of Christ. If we can't do it here, how can we do it with our neighbors? If you don't necessarily seek God, how can you seek fellowship with one another these are questions that we have to ask here are other tensions that we have in our church singleness versus married making singles feel like second class citizens we also have the distinction between uh, uh, single parent homes and divorce homes or image management that we supp- we're supposed to look a particular way wouldn't you look at the nursery won't you look at our youth program here is the thing and by the way I just I meant to say this at the beginning Big ups to Terrence and his team. They took uh, a, a ton of kids out to, uh, what was it, Vic, uh, to Pocahontas. Pocahontas? <laughs> they got to Pocahontas. Uh, and, uh, you know, I pray their strength because I went on a youth retreat. I don't think I'll ever do it again in my life. I was so tired and exhausted. But, but God was glorified and amen for that. But when you think about our, even our children programs and our youth programs, we don't want them to know a day where there is distinction. I don't want my son to sit in the nursery and look at himself. I want him to recognize that he is a black man, amen. But I don't want him to hate his brother or sister or be hated by his brother or sister. Propaganda from our society. Even in our own programs, we have to preach the gospel by trying to unite our children together. Even when we come from different backgrounds. You know why that's so important? Because it is the very idol of our hearts. Because think about it. If I remember when I was a kid and, and I asked myself, what if I came home with a, with a white woman? What if I came home with, a, with an Asian woman? These are realities that are put in my mind even as a child. What if, Mike? What if that happened? I have a beautiful wife. Amen. I don't need y'all to say amen. Amen. Okay. Okay, somebody. You look good. Uh, take that off the podcast. Uh, but I don't, I don't, I don't, we don't want our church to live 
like that even though we're dysfunctional. We don't want to take the dysfunctional label off because we want to look functional. No, that's not the part. We want to be an image in which we are perfected by Jesus and not by what we do. So we're all radically corrupt. And second point, we're all radically redeemed. When you look at verses 21 through 26, and this is a lot of verses, and I intentionally have these verses, so I'm not trying to unpack every single one. I'm trying to highlight key aspects of what, Jesus, what, what Paul is saying to the Jews and to us. The question is, if we are all radically redeemed, and yet we're all radically corrupt, there's a tension. And we have to understand and know how to live within that tension that I am a sinner saved by grace. It's not that I won't ever lust again. It's not that I won't ever have the thought of, uh, of offending someone else or saying something that will offend a brother or sister. I will do that. It's if I do it, do I repent? Do I seek forgiveness? So the question is, why are we radically redeemed? It is to display God's glory to the world. I cannot emphasize that enough. It is to display God's glory to the world. We want, to, we want people to inquire about how can we live in tension with one another. How can someone for Confederate monuments be living in community with someone that is against it? How can someone who comes from an impoverished background live in community with someone who has means and wealth and not feel threatened or not feel demeaned? How can can a drug addict live in community with someone who doesn't know anything about addictions or, or, or is enlightened to what it means to be addicted to drugs? How can a kid who comes from a well-to-do family be with a kid who comes from a family where his mother has been on drugs and they've been on food stamps and they lived in shelters? How can a person who's been abused and treated and, and wrong and raped be in community with someone who doesn't even know what that means? Y'all, y'all see where I'm going. There is tension within that because we don't, we can't act like we know it all. See what I'm saying? We can't act as if we can empathize with everyone, but we're supposed to sympathize because the only person that can empathize with every need is the high priest and his name is Jesus Christ. Here's the reality. That if we live in that tension, we need to pursue peace and harmony with one another. And Paul gets to that in chapter 12. That in living in peace and harmony, what we do is there's a beauty of God's righteousness that is not fixed on human standards or moral efforts, but it is demonstrated through the work of Christ. Christ our Redeemer. And when we see that, it is the work on the cross that Paul makes clear that all who believe through faith. We're in a month in which we know the big Protestant remove, uh, reformation happening that protest, that demonstration, which we'll talk about a little bit later, was key because through faith we are justified in Christ, not by our works. Why does he declare that no distinctions? Why does he make it clear that there are no distinctions? Because what Paul is trying to show the Jews is that though that God may have chose you long ago through your ancestors, through your forefathers, It is not that God did not die for everybody. And what he died for is that those distinctions, those barriers in Ephesians 2 and 14 be torn down. And the peace we find is not in how much we work towards harmony. The peace we find is in Christ. I'm not trying to speak in in tongues. I'm just trying to say what the Bible says. 
And what Jesus and what Paul is saying in this, after making a, an entire argument in the past two chapters, that the whole entire race, human race, is sinful, that all have fallen short. This includes Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, no matter your nationality, because why? We fundamentally need a hope, and that hope is in Jesus Christ. That hope is in the one who died for us. That hope is in the one who is able to lay his life down for us who were hostile enemies to Christ. Amen, church. Because why? When we fought God. Have you ever had a child, by the way, that fought you, slapped your glasses off your face? rebelled against you, kick and scream. I mean, no matter if you're a parent or you help someone in the youth program or this may have been in the nursery with my son. You get so frustrated when your kid slaps you. You get so frustrated when someone slaps you with their words. When someone makes a distinction of who you are. You get frustrated because you don't want to be put in boxes. I know millennials are here today in huge population and we don't like labels, right? We don't want to be put in that box. So keep me out of that box. But there's one box you want to be in. And that's the box of Jesus Christ. And that is in his body and in his house. And so what what Paul is saying, to be justified on the foundation of the work of Christ, there is redemption for sinners, a propitiation of God's wrath, and a demonstration of justice. I'm going to run through three of those very quickly. And here it is. Redemption is not just simply to say that we're here together. It's that we've been purchased, that we've been delivered. A lot of times we don't like to talk about deliverance in our churches. But the reality is when we are aware of an enemy that is trying to do his job, which is divide us in every respect, what we become aware of is the fact that deliverance is what Jesus did on the cross. Mark 10, 45, where he says that he did not, for for the son did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. Why is that important? Church, it's important to understand that we are no longer in the grip of sin. I'm going to kind of hurry up just a little bit. And then the propitiation is the righteousness. It is a, uh, is a righteous anger assuaged. When you look at this particular passage in this context, pagans at that time were trying to pacify their gods by making sure that they offered them good offerings and they wouldn't be moody or bad-tempered or they wouldn't necessarily try to rebel against them. But God doesn't do that. Our God doesn't do that. Our God sacrificed himself. See, we don't have to offer something to God in order for his... Wage for his anger to be assuaged. Jesus did that. We don't have to wake up in the morning feeling as if I'm trying to devote myself to God. And so I need to offer up something. What you need to offer is yourself as a living sacrifice. A propitiation for our sins is that Christ totally died. And the demonstration. We cannot pursue true justice, Christians, outside of Jesus. We cannot do it. It was MLK who said this in his autobiography that... An active, and he advocated that nonviolent protest, he said this, uh, he av- because he advocated nonviolent protest, he said this, the way to acquiescence leads to moral and spiritual suicide. The way of violence leads to bitterness to survivors and brutality in the destroyer. But the way of nonviolence leads to redemption and manifestation of the beloved community. Jesus did not kill and destroy you for acts of violence. He gave his life and paid full price for it. That's true justice. Seeking the interests of others. 
sacrificing and giving up for your brothers and sisters. It was one day when I was back in St. Louis. My spiritual mother said, Mike, don't preach it if you don't believe it. I seen her being ushered to her car. I had seen her in a couple months. My pastor back in St. Louis called me and said that there would be some issues that he needed to talk to me about. Well, she was being wheeled to her car. And as she was being wheeled to her car, she looked frail and sickly. And I was devastated because I didn't anticipate on seeing her this way. This woman prayed for me. When I was in college and I I wanted to go the other way, she would call to see if I was still walking with Jesus. This is a woman who I consider a spiritual mother. And so when I see her being ushered into the car, I was deeply hurt. She, she had me pulled over to the passenger side of the vehicle. And she had me lean into the car and she whispered into my ear, Mike, God is going to heal me from stage four cancer. And she said this, she said, if you don't believe it, son, don't preach it. What does this have to do with a dysfunctional family? If we don't believe the gospel can unify our hearts, if we don't think that a gospel can help a dysfunctional body of Christ live together in union, don't preach it. Don't believe it. Don't be here. I give you every right to leave out of the door. But if you believe it, my God, preach it. Live it out. Allow it to be the way that you live in community in this place and in your neighborhoods. That is the gospel. And as you come to offer, understand there's a grace that's been given to you. So you're not giving your mere resources. You're giving your hearts. So come here knowing that you're giving your hearts at the end of this summer. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we love you and we bless you because you are God who continuously shows his steadfast love to us. You help us, Lord Jesus, to move beyond the distinctions, to break down the barriers, to live in unity with one another in a way that brings glory to you. We pray, God, that you continue to help us as a dysfunctional family. Know that we don't seek you. Know that we seek community with our whole hearts. But, Lord Jesus, we only, at times, seek for ourselves. So let us pray to you who is able to turn our hearts to you, knowing that you're the only one to do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.